The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. Thank you, Meg. Invite your attention this morning uh, to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. We're going to be starting a new series here for the next month or so. Uh, if you're visiting with us, there's a, a blue Bible in front of you. It's on page 938. If you uh, don't have a Bible, you're welcome to take that as a gift from us to you. Uh, but we're on page 938. Uh, the next few weeks, some of you have asked about this. Where are we headed with the sermons? We're done with Philippians. Uh, it took 13 weeks to get through. Where are we headed now? These next three out of four weeks are questions that someone in the congregation, a real breathing congregation member or intender, asked the pastor. And you say, well, what do you mean? Uh, back in the back, there's a little box by our information rack that says, ask the pastor. If you ever have a Bible question or, or something, what does God think about this? I will do my best and often researching on topics to answer those questions. The next three out of four weeks are questions that people have submitted that are the most popular questions that on our website. So the next four weeks, let me give those to you. Next week, we have John Mark Clifton from the North American Mission Board coming to speak. Today, we're looking at, is God a God of wrath? That's where we're headed today. Two weeks from today, Labor Day Sunday, we will look at a, a big question that comes up. Does baptism save? Is that how we, how does that work? And then number, uh, the last week, third question, is homosexuality a sin? Can think of a more relevant topic, and many of you know that answer, but why do we believe that we believe that way? So next week, John Mark Clifton will be here. How many of you heard John Mark speak before? Some hands go up. Some of you all know. He's been around the block. Uh, he was my mentor many, many years ago, still is today in many ways. So we'll look forward to having him here next week. Now, I'm going to ask for your hands to raise on this. How many of you all have ever been to Lambert's in Springfield, south of Springfield, Missouri? Most hands go up. What is Lambert's known for, congregation? Throat rolls. Well, this next story, many of you have heard, but I need to share with you because I think you'll find it quite amusing. They may have their own Liebeck versus McDonald's restaurant, hot coffee lawsuit sort of thing on their, uh, on their plates. Lambert's was sued a couple weeks back by a person out of St. Louis, a pastor, believe it or not, in St. Louis. And this person uh, claims that she was sustained a lacerated cornea with a detachment and all the head, neck, eye, and vision uh, problems that go with that. Why? Because she wasn't looking when a roll came and hit her in the face. Now, there's some irony here, isn't there? Is the practice, doesn't it say on the sign, and you see it above you, it says the home of what? Third rolls. How do you miss a throwed roll that is coming your way if you know that the rolls are, yes, you could be talking and things happen. She claims that she had no idea that the restaurant ever threw rolls. She's seeking $25,000 to pay her medical bills for carelessness and negligence on the part of the, the restaurant itself. It's very similar to Royals fans, if you know the story from a couple years back, when the hot dog uh, was shot from the hot dog machine and hit a guy in the eye, and he said that, uh, anyway, you can go figure those things out. But the courts actually ruled in favor of the Royals in that point because they were under the, the baseball thing that says that you're at the stadium, you're taking a risk. So obvious, isn't it? Think about this. If you go to Lambert, you expect what? 
throat rolls. There's your third advertisement for Lambert's in five minutes. <laughs> How much more obvious can it be about throat rolls? You know it's the home of throat rolls. I'm not saying I, we're not praying for that person, but simply it says home of throat rolls. Doesn't make any sense, does it? Well, God shares something spiritually that seems to make a lot of sense, too, from Isaiah 40, verse 26. God says this. He says, lift up your eyes on high and see. Who created these? Who, he who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name. By the greatness of his might and because he is strong and powerful and not one is missing. Friends, the same is true of the wrath of God, isn't it? As the same as throat rolls. It's so obvious but it's often so ignored. Would you agree with that? Just like those throat rolls. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, one of those great old historic documents, asks this question. It says, what does every sin deserve? And the answer in the catechism is, every sin deserves God's wrath and curse, both in this life and the life to come. And that is the theme throughout all scripture. It's so obvious, just like that sign of throat rolls, that sin deserves God's wrath and justice. But that begs the question, what is God's wrath? Is it just God flying off the handle because of us? Not necessarily. We'll get there. Why is it so important as a Christian for you to understand that God is a God of wrath as much as he is a God of love? And for our church, how does this help us live a gospel-centered life, both together and as individuals? Well, I think the purpose is this. The big idea this week is simply this. If you don't understand or believe in the wrath of God, the gospel will not thrill you, will not empower you, or will not move you. And that is the truth. Friends, because we live in a society very much today that does not understand this attribute or characteristic of God. Many say that God is a loving God, but have a hard time seeing him as a God of wrath. You've probably had those conversations before. The problem, though, alone has caused many Christians to completely take out the wrath of God from the presentation of the gospel. To not speak of wrath is to not speak the whole gospel. Yet our God is a God of love, 1 John 4, 16. But he's also a God of wrath. So we'll be in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. This is a great question. Uh, great question someone from our congregation asked. We're going to look at five aspects, five aspects of God's wrath. First, we're going to see the definition of wrath. What does it mean? We're going to see the timing of God's wrath, the source of his wrath. The extent, how far does this go? And then the cause of wrath. We're going to do that out of one verse. We're going to read through verse 25. We're going to really camp out in verse 18. And this context around here, because we we're not starting a book, let me just give you the quick context. Paul is writing to the church at Rome, a church that he's never visited. You remember from Philippians, we, we read and saw that Paul was in prison in, in, in Rome, but he never has met this church at Rome. But Paul says in verse 16 that he's not ashamed of the gospel. Folks, we should never be ashamed of Jesus Christ. Even in a prison, we should never be ashamed of Christ. And Paul tells them from the get-go that this thing called the gospel isn't just for his Jewish brothers. It's for Gentiles. And praise God for that because I don't know anyone who's Jewish birthed in here. Friends, that's all of us. Thank God for that very truth. And what did Christ come to do? He came so that we would live through faith to him, unto him, and for him. That's verses 16 and 17. So with that in mind, let's look at this obvious but often ignored part of who God is. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. If you're able this morning, if you join me in honoring God's word by standing as we read, that would be greatly appreciated. I'll be 
reading out of the English Standard Version, the ESV, for those uh, who like to know that information. Romans 1, 18 through 25. Paul writes this. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be made known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived or known ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor God or honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. Verse 24. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Friends, that's where we're headed today. Very tough question. And please hear me when I say this. This is not just a sermon you get up and preach. This is a, been a lot of prayer this week. This is not an easy sermon to give. So as you listen, pray for me because this is a tough topic. But we believe the Bible and this is a necessary topic because it's all about who God is in the gospel. So let's go before the Lord in prayer today. Father, we are so humbled this morning that you have revealed yourself to us. As Mark read in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the works are of your hands, Lord, everything in this world is. But Lord, we know that your law is a, is a, is a converting of the soul, a refreshing of the soul, as it says. Lord, we know that no one in this world is without excuse, that everyone, whether they're in Timbuktu, out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, or, or somewhere in the city, Lord, you have given us enough in these verses to know that there is a God, and you've given us a conscience to know that we have sinned. And yet, Lord, you have said that you will someday rectify that sin in judgment through your wrath. Lord, as we study this, may we do it humbly, may we do it honorably, and may we do it always lifting up higher and higher the thoughts of you, because Lord, this is where we need to go with this. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. John MacArthur, if you are a, a listener to radio, you, many of you have heard John MacArthur over the years, very faithful man. Hard to believe he's in his late 70s. He said this about God's wrath. He said, God's attributes are balanced in divine perfection. If God had no righteous anger or wrath, he would not be God, just as surely as he would not be God without his gracious love. He perfectly hates just as he perfectly loves, perfectly loving righteousness and perfectly hating evil. Could not summarize it better than that. A.W. Pink, many of you have read his book, or maybe uh, I would encourage you to read his book, uh, The Attributes of God. An old English writer said this. He said, a study of the concordance shows that there are more than 600 references in Scripture to the anger, fury, and wrath of God than there are to his love and to his tenderness. Because God is holy, he hates sin. Because he hates sin, his anger burns against the sinner. See Psalm 7, verse 11. That'll help you win, make friends, and influence people, won't it? Let me read you some Old Testament verses to set this off. And I'm going to give you some references. We're going to, it's a topical sermon. It's not like we're used to going verse by verse. We're going to jump around a lot, but I'll give you the reference. Maybe write it down, and you can look it up later because you won't have time to flip all the time. That small book of Nahum, 
chapter 1, verses 2 and 3 says this. The wrath of God in the Old Testament. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. But the Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in a whirlwind and the clouds are a dust at his feet. And it goes on in verse 6 of that same chapter. Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces. What about Jeremiah 7.20? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my anger and my wrath will be poured out on this place upon man and beast, upon trees of the field and the fruit of the ground, and it will burn and not be quenched. Friends, there's over 600 references. I'm giving you two from the old and two from the new. Let me give you uh, one from John the Baptist, the great uh, eater of honey and locusts, said this. His winnowing fork, that's Christ, is in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Romans 2, verse 5. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Wow. How many of y'all have ever heard a sermon on the wrath of God? Just out of random curiosity. I'm looking across the very, it's about half and half. We don't talk about this much today. Friends, it's not popular, is it? You don't go up and post on your Facebook, we're going to talk about the wrath of God today and get your church to sell out. It just doesn't happen. But it's who God is. Charles Spurgeon said, the wrath of the Lamb is the most awful wrath beneath the sun. Hebrews 10, verse 31 says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Friends, both the Old and New Testaments reflect the balance, saying in Psalm 45 and verse 7, God, you have loved righteousness but hated wickedness. That's what it's all about. So let's start with the definition of wrath, give you that survey. The definition of God's wrath. He says in that first part of verse 18, he says, for the wrath of God. There are two words, if I can be geeky and greeky here for just a second. There are two words that the Bible talks about for wrath. There's the Greek word thumos, which is a word that meant a violent movement of air, of ground, of animals. It's basically like flying off the handle. You know, someone says something to you and you just react. That's one way anger is used in the uh, New Testament. The word here, though, for wrath in verse 18 that we're going to look at is the Greek word orge. It's a word that's much more suited to a description of God's wrath in the New Testament. It's derived from the root word which speaks of growing ripe or getting ready to bear. It gives the meaning of a settled disposition arising out of God's nature. John 3.36 says that this wrath belongs to God. He who doesn't believe in the Son of God, the wrath of God abides or remains on him. So let me be very clear. The wrath of God is not some passionate anger flying off the handle. Boy, I'm just going to get them back sort of anger. It is settled. It is determined. And it is indignation that has been stored up for thousands of years against humanity. It is different than an emotional and uncontrolled anger that we often experience. I mean, think about this. When we, most often when we get angry, we're offended and our pride gets in the way, doesn't it? We've been there, done that many times. That's a reflection of our evil hearts that we'll talk about today. But even when we are angry about the right things, our own sinfulness usually pollutes our anger, doesn't it? You may be, you may be mad about something that's truly you should be mad about, but boy, if they would just, sin comes in. But God's anger is pure and untainted by sin. So this is the first sub point I want to give you. God's wrath is pure because it's related to his holiness. 
God's wrath is pure because it's related to his holiness. Friends, in his holiness, God demands and does not tolerate sin. John chapter 2, if you remember this part of the Bible, you remember that Jesus went into the temple and he cleaned out the temple because the people there were selling and, and doing all sorts of things that they shouldn't have done. And people say, well, Jesus never sinned, but he got angry. Oh, but it was a righteous anger because he was God himself and he never sins. And praise God that Jesus never sinned or else we would be hopeless. But in the second time that he cleared the temple in Matthew 21, Matthew 21, 12 and following says this. It says, Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Friends, when Jesus got mad, the, the classic examples, people will say, well, God's love, love, love. He never got mad. He, he sinned when he did that. Friend, if you believe that Jesus sinned, you do not have a perfect Savior. And that's the truth. God's anger is not an irrational rage. It's the only response that a holy God could have towards evil. God could not be holy and not be angry at evil. Holiness cannot tolerate unholiness. Habakkuk 1.13, I wrote a couple verses down here, says, You are pure, you are of purer eyes than to behold evil, and cannot look on wickedness, O Lord. Psalm 5.4, For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, nor shall evil dwell with you. Friends, God's wrath is pure because it's related to his holiness. But secondly, God's wrath, the second sub-point here is God's wrath is pure because it's related to his justice. It's related to his justice. It will be up on the screen for you there. Joshua 7, 9 says this. Joshua said to Achan, my son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. God's wrath is pure because it's related to his justice. Nothing God does in his justice is ever unkind. Friends, it is not like us when we do things angrily, angrily, or however you say that word. It is done with pure holiness, with pure thought, because he is a holy God. And the application point, I think, for you is, is simply this. Because God is holy and requires satisfaction for his wrath, and because God is love, he makes satisfaction for us in Jesus Christ. Christian, if you're here today, the greatest joy you have, you will hear from this pulpit until God calls me home or calls me away, is that Christ is your satisfaction. What should have fallen on us for our sin was absorbed by Christ in his death. It's called the propitiation. You can look it up in 1 John 2 or Romans 3. Friends, God took it all. There wasn't an ounce. You know, there's this thought out there today that uh, some people say it's called the new perspective on Paul. People say, well, well God the Father was child abusing Jesus Christ, the Son. Did I miss that somewhere in Scripture, guys? It's not true at all. Friends, this was completely a work of the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It was not divine child abuse. Jesus willingly offered himself so that we would have life and life eternal. You know, I'm going to give you a bad story about anger, and it comes from a pastor. There's a true story that happened in Tennessee about five years ago. Pastor uh, Michael, or Joe Colquitt, was mad at his son, Michael Colquitt. He got a bit lax on his church attendance. And many of you remember these old signs. This picture will show you these old attendance signs. Well, his attendance at his church, Pastor Joe's church, kept going down. And he found that his son had started most of the people walking away from the church. So what did dad do? 
He confronted his 32-year-old son about his poor attendance and his influence on others by pointing a gun at him and threatening him to get back in to church. The end result was a judicial order of protection in January 2010. And the pastor has actually been in jail because of this, folks. But there's no word on whether or not Michael's now getting back to church more often or not. We don't know. Friends, make sure you have the right definition of who God is. God is not like, bless his heart, this pastor, who went off the handle and said, son, come, or I'm going to blow your brains out, so to speak. Friends, this is a God who's perfectly holy and balanced in all that he does. When God judges, he does it with the utmost holiness and the utmost love. The great Puritan writer Thomas Boston said this about the wrath of God. He said, the wrath of God is irresistible. There's no standing before it. The wrath of God is unavoidable to those who are in sin and die in their sin. The wrath of God is powerful and fierce. The wrath of God is insupportable. Who can stop it? The wrath of God is penetrating and piercing. It's a burning wrath. And the wrath of God is a constant wrath, and it's an eternal wrath. Friends, I am so grateful that Jesus Christ gave himself for us, aren't you? That we don't have to go through that if you're a Christian, and we'll get there. That's the definition of wrath. It's a settled wrath against sin because God is a settled God. He's not a willy-nilly God that wakes up one day and says, hey, what's going to happen today? He's a sovereign God, and thank him for that. We move on. He goes on to the timing of God's wrath, the timing. We saw the definition, now the timing. Look back at verse 18. Paul says that, for the wrath of God is revealed. That's the key phrase there, is revealed. Revealed is a familiar Greek word. It means to uncover or make known. And this verb is in the present tense. Why is that important? Because it means that God's wrath is continually being revealed. It wasn't done just to Sodom and Gomorrah. It wasn't done just at 500 years ago. God's wrath continues on till, till the day he returns. And that's the first sub-point, is God's wrath has always been revealed to fallen mankind. Think about this. Let's just count them up in our heads. Many of you know these stories. Think about the fall of man. Was God's wrath not against Adam and Eve when he kicked him out of the garden? And believe me, Indiana Jones will never find the garden, even if there's another movie. So don't try it. Hollywood can't get there. The flood. The flood. What biggest example, probably, that we have from the Old Testament, one of the biggest, Sodom and Gomorrah. How about the plagues of Egypt in the Exodus, the frogs, the lice, the flies, the pestilence, the boils, the hail, the locusts, the darkness, the death of the firstborn, and Pharaoh's army being swallowed up in the Red Sea. Friends, those are examples that God has always revealed to mankind about his wrath. But by far surpassing revelation of God's wrath, it was placed on his son. When Jesus took himself the sin of the world and bore the full divine force of God's fury as its penalty, God hated sin so deeply that it required a perfect sacrifice, fully God, fully man. And he did that on our behalf. What a praise that is. Isaiah 53, very familiar passage, but let me share it with you. Surely he, Christ, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions and was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that was brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Praise God for that. Amen. Second sub-point is this. God's wrath is being stored up for the coming day. Being stored up for the coming day. Jeffrey Wilson, a great commentator on Romans, said that God is no idle spectator of world events. 
He is dynamically active in human affairs. And this is, means simply this, is that there is coming a day when God will set all things right. And if you're a Christian, what a great prayer that is. Pray, come, Lord Jesus, come, because that is the prayer that we have for this world, folks, because politics isn't going to save it. Religion's not going to save it. Only Jesus Christ and the gospel can save this world. And so here's a question I have for you. God has fully taken the wrath, but let me give you this application point. Since the death of Christ drained God's wrath against his wife, the church, dry, will it not drain your anger, husband, or wife against your spouse? Did you ever think of it that way? Friends, the wrath of God is very practical. The Bible tells us in Ephesians 4 not to store up wrath, not to let the sun go down on our anger. And as God is holy in his wrath, we must pray for wisdom about how we are angry about things. I have flown off the handle many times. Ask my wife. I'll, I'll freely admit that from the pulpit. You have too. But friends, the question is, are we praying that God would keep our anger under control for those things that matter most? But the timing is, is that someday all our loose words, all our loose thoughts, all our loose intentions will stand before God in judgment. Romans 2, 5 through 11 tells us. Let's move on. So he says there's the definition. It's a settled wrath. The timing is from, it's going to be revealed from heaven. It could be any time. Someone always asks, Pastor, when's Jesus going to return? We know Jesus will return when God allows that to happen. We know not the day or the hour. But notice also, thirdly, the source of the wrath. The source of the wrath. For the wrath of God, that's the definition, is revealed, that's the timing, from where? From heaven. Notice that. God's wrath is rendered from heaven is the first sub-point. God's wrath is rendered from heaven. Despite Satan's present power as prince of the air, the earth is ultimately dominated by heaven, the throne of God. Let me just share some verses with you. The Lord says in Isaiah 66, 1, the heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. He says also in Psalm 94, verses 1 and 2, he's the judge of the earth. David says, O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth, and repay to the proud what they deserve. Psalm 97, 1 says, The Lord reigns. The earth is dominated by heaven's rule, and God's wrath has its source in heaven. Friends, that's the greatest thing. Wrath does not come from an army defeating another army. Ultimately, to end things, it comes from the perfect, holy character of God. Let me give you two quick ways that this will happen. Second subpoint is God's wrath is revealed in two ways. It's through, first off, his moral order. When God made the world, he built certain moral as well as physical laws that have governed us. And just as, think about it, when a person falls from a building, what's going to happen to them? They're going to fall down and hit it. I can't say, well, God's not true. It's like standing on I-70 or I-35 and saying, I see that Mack truck coming at me. I don't believe it's happening. Well, I'm going to really put it to someone who tells me God's not real and say, look, you don't believe it's real? Then stand in front of that Mack truck. Well, I don't think that Mack truck's coming. Oh, yeah? Let's see what happens in five minutes and see what happens as it barrels down your way. Friends, we have a conscience. That is built-in wrath. You realize that. God has given us the circuit court judge, so to speak, in our minds and our hearts that when we sin, it is readily available for us to know. In this sense, God is not specifically intervening. He's giving us the judgment through his spirit to, our, to ourselves in that way. This is why Paul stated, Galatians 6, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, what happens, congregation? He also reaps. For he sows to his flesh will reap the flesh of corruption, but he who sows to the spirit will reap the spirit of everlasting life. God has given us a conscience. 
Friends, if anyone ever tells you that God, that big question comes up, well, pastor, what about, what about the person in the Amazon of South America who's never heard the gospel? What do we do with them? Well, if it was a perfect world, then that perfect person could perfectly live a, a life and perfectly go to heaven. But friends, they've sinned. Even those natives that I, I think we're down to like 200 less people groups that we don't know about, much about them. They have no contact. Friends, God is still sovereign, and we need to take the gospel to them because every people group everywhere needs the gospel of Jesus Christ and pray that God would make that known to them. How's a person saved? Friends, the Bible says, look back at verse 19 of the chapter here. It says, God has made known or plain to them because he has shown it to them. Friends, even a person who may not have heard the name of Jesus has enough about God by looking around to, to know that there is a God, inwardly and outwardly. But sometimes, secondly, God will make his wrath known by his direct and personal intervention. God is not some impersonal cosmic force that set the universe into motion and then just let it be. Uh, if we go back to the Old Testament, there's several ver- words for this. You know, some people say, well, isn't God different in the Old Testament than the New? No, he's not. He's the same. Praise God for that. He's the same. But over, and I'm just going to count these up here, there's 97 times that God's word, it says that he is using his wrath as a burning fury. 41 times the word Haran is used as a burning fierce wrath in the Old Testament. 34 times his wrath is called bitter to those who receive it. And lastly, another word, Hamah, that's used in the Old Testament is used frequently as a way to describe God's wrath as a venom or a poison to those who do not know God himself. Wow. Friends, have you ever wondered that question? This is the last application point for this. Being saved by God is meaningless unless you know precisely what it is you're being saved from. That's the next application point. What are you saved from? You are saved from God's wrath. This will be up on the screen here in just a second. You are saved from God's wrath. Yes, you're saved from your sin. Yes, you are saved from decisions you have made. But ultimately, you are saved from the wrath and judgment of God. You know, a couple years back, uh, there's a story that came out of the Presbyterian churches of USA. If I can say so, the liberal Presbyterians that we would not side with on many things. But there was a controversy that came out of that thing. Many of you may remember this two years ago. How many of you have heard the song In Christ Alone by Keith Getty and Stuart Townsend? In Christ Alone, raise your hand if you had that happen. A lot of hands go up. In August 2013, the wrath of God was very much a point of debate for this church. They were trying to decide whether to exclude that song in Christ alone from their hymnals. You'll see the picture of the people singing from an actual uh, Presbyterian church. But it had been sung by many people for many years. And here's how the line goes. Many of you have sung this from the third stanza. It says, till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. They wanted to substitute it this way. As Jesus died... The love of God was magnified. Hmm. The authors insisted the original wording to take that out should not be there because God is not a God of wrath is what they decided. And they voted nine to six to take out that song and to change the words of that song to put it back into their hymnal. Isn't that amazing? Friends, this very doctrine affects the very things that we sing and we believe. Friends, what we believe about God and his son is the most important thing. And yet countless people recoil at the God of the Bible and turn instead to a God of their own imagination. Let me just say as plain as I can, any formulation of a God that 
is shorn of his justice, is no God worth worshiping. Nor is he a God able to convict and save sinners. When wrath is taken away, so is the gospel. And that is why this discussion matters. Friends, I am grateful. Mark, thank you. Mark and I talked about this on Monday. I was at the library. Mark called me and said, what songs are we going to sing? And Mark had a very wise thing. He said, we're just going to sing praises to God. How do you uplift the wrath of God? You sing to God to thank him for who he is. Friends, are you grateful that God has taken that away for us? So we move on. Seeing the definition of wrath, the timing of wrath, the source of God's wrath. Fourthly, how far does this go? The extent of God's wrath. The extent of God's wrath. Look back at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, and here's the key phrase, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. All ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And the first subpoint you'll see here is that God's wrath is universal. God's wrath is universal. Friends, it's against all. Some people say, well, is it just against the, the Hitlers of the world or, or the Mussolinis from World War II or the Cambodian guy, Pol Pot? Uh, is it the Osama bin Laden? So they deserve God's wrath, don't they, Pastor? Amen, they do. But friend, lest we forget that all of us deserve God's wrath outside of Jesus Christ. There is none righteous, no, not one, Romans 3.10 says. The scriptures say in Galatians 3.2 that the scriptures have confined all under sin. Every person without Christ will experience God's wrath. There's no amount of goodwill. There's no amount of helping the poor. That's a good, noble thing. There's no part of trying to come to church enough or praying enough or, or giving enough. Friends, it is all in Christ. He's the only one that can deliver us from God's wrath. Acts 17, Paul said this on Mars Hill. The times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, that's Christ, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him, Christ, from the dead. What about Second Thessalonians 1, 8 and 9? God will come in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Friends, there's no one in this world who can escape, even from the cute baby all the way up to the, the most beautiful person of grace and age. Every one of us has sinned, and this is why we believe in the doctrine of original sin. We believe that when a baby is conceived, they are born into sin. That's Romans 5, 12 through 18. And so God's wrath is coming. It's universal. Secondly, God's wrath is reserved, second subpoint, reserved for, for and justly directed at sin. Did you see how Paul described it here? He said it's ungodliness. Wow, ungodliness. It means an irreverence or a godlessness. It, it, Jude uses this word four times in Jude uh, verses 14 and 15 of his book. It, it's basically a neglect of God himself. Friends, God's wrath is coming for ungodliness. Secondly, you notice that word unrighteousness. It's an injustice, injustice and wrongdoing. It, it encompasses the idea of ungodliness but focuses on its result. You have people who are ungodly naturally, but you have the result. They live it out. They actually act it out. Friends, God does not hate poor people or rich people. God does not hate dumb people or smart people. God does not hate computer-savvy people or non-computer-savvy people. He doesn't even hate people that have a Facebook. Praise God for that. But you know what? 
He hates the sin of those people, doesn't he? And all others who naturally practice and sin inevitably brings his wrath. Here's man's greatest problem. Here's the, here's the application point that's going to be up there for you. Man's greatest problem is he is under God's wrath because of his sin. Friends, to deny this is to deny a foundational doctrine of Christianity. To deny the wrath of God is to deny the foundational doctrine of Christianity. That is the last subpoint on that. Friends, you have to know that. If your God is a God of love and you have no God of wrath, then can I say to you, can I submit to you with all love in, my, in this heart, you do not have the God of the Bible, you have a God of your own making. And that goes for anyone. Friends, we know that there's a variety of opinions on things Christianity. The word is clear on many, many things. And yes, we can have some liberty on, do you eat this? Do you not eat that? All food's clean, but I may not eat something, so it doesn't offend you. But friends, we cannot debate this. We believe that God is a God of wrath because he is a God of infinite justice and holiness because he's also a God of love. That is the God of the Bible. That's the extent of God's wrath. Let's close with this. Number five, what is the cause of God's wrath? We've seen the definition, the timing, the source, and the extent. Look at that last phrase. What's the cause of this wrath? It's those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Friends, man's sinful disposition is to suppress the truth. That's the first sub-point. Man's sinful disposition is to suppress the truth. Every person is naturally inclined to follow sin. Ephesians 2 said, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. 1 Corinthians says that there's nothing that we understand. It's foolishness to us. The, spirit, the things of the Spirit are foolishness to us outside of Jesus Christ. Man's sinful disposition is to suppress the truth. It means it's kind of the, the word there in the Greek, just to stop here, is if you're pushing down on something and it's pushing equally back up. Maybe you've tried that before. Many of you husbands who've tried to pack for your wives on trips and you're just trying to get that goofy thing to close before you can get to the airport, it's like trying to stuff the clothes in there and it won't fit. It's going to do what? It's going to spring right back like a jack-in-the-box right back in your face. Many of you have been there, done that. Friends, that's what, God, that's what we do to the truth. We press it down saying, no, God, I don't want this, but it springs right back up because God's power is always bigger than our own. That's the first Subpoint is that men's sin, sinful disposition is to suppress the truth. Second thing is this, is men are not naturally lovers of God. They hate God when rather that he were dead. Many people will say to me as a pastor, especially on the streets, you know, pastor, I love God. I pray that's very true. But do you know that the most idolatrous hour in any week of a church is when? When we show up to worship God. Because you may have a thought about God, and I may have a thought about God. If it's not settled in God's word, then we are not worshiping correctly. So men's sinful disposition is to suppress the truth, and men are not naturally lovers of God. The message of the gospel, let me just be very clear with this, and I say this with hopefully all humility. The message of the gospel, then, is not that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. It is that God loves you, yes, and hates your sin, yes, and unless you repent, you will experience the full fury of his wrath. John 3.16, congregation, you who know it, can you say it with me? For God so loved the world that he gave what? His only son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting or eternal life. John 3.17, 
3 verse 17 says, And God did not send Christ into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. That's how we always opened up every sharing of the gospel on the streets of Westport for years. And people would come up and say, yes, you're, you're contradictory. You just said that God's a God of wrath, but you said he didn't come to condemn the world. But John 3.18, oh, read verses in context, amen? John 3.18 says that we are presently under the condemnation of God. God didn't have to condemn the world, folks, through Christ. It was already condemned because Christ knows the hearts of every man, and he knows that we are not naturally lovers of him. Friends, let me say it this way. Christ is not sati- Christ satisfied God's justice not by endur- Be very clear. Slow down. Christ satisfied God's justice by enduring God's wrath. It takes more than crosses, Roman soldiers, nails, crowns of thorns, or lances to pay for our sin. Do you believe that? Friends, it took the very wrath of God pouring out every sin that could have been committed to be received by God himself in Christ to take that over. But the cause of it is us. The cause of it is us. That is what it's all about. Now, I heard a story about a uh, Spanish rebel. I didn't know this man until I looked up his life. But on his deathbed, the Spanish patriot, Navarez, and you'll see his picture pop up here, Navarez. He looks like a Spanish patriot. He's a very dignified-looking man. And he was asked if he had forgiven all of his enemies. The priest asked him that on his deathbed. And in astonishment, Navarez turned to the priest and replied, Father, I have no enemies. I shot them all. (laughs) It's one way to execute justice. Friends, God doesn't have to forgive his enemies. They have all, including us, sinned against him. God doesn't have to make peace with us. Friends, it's reverse. We need to make peace with him through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Friends, how you feel about the wrath of God reveals about how important he is to you. Say it that way. How you feel about God's wrath defines how you view hell. It defines how you view the nature of God. And it defines how you view the cross itself. Every true Christian will one day lift up in voice, in celebration, when God bears his arm in judgment against his enemies. This next illustration may seem extreme, but I think biblically we can make the case. If a mother has a son who does not know Jesus Christ and the mother knows Christ, when God sentences that person to hell forever, there will be clapping and adoration from that mom. Why? Because she knows that God is doing exactly what he is to do. He is setting all things right. Friends, there will be celebration in heaven when God once and for all rids the earth of all those who have refused with a hard and stiff neck. God, I want nothing to do with you. Say, that's not the God I love. Then, friends, you don't have the God of the Bible because this is the God we serve. God has given us, hasn't he, point after point of hearing sermons or getting a gospel track or conversations or seeing nature. God has given us so many opportunities to come to know him. But on that day, he will say enough. It is done. It is finished once and for all. Hebrews 9, 27. It is destined for a man to die how many times? Once. And then what? Face the judgment. That's right. Friends, I say that not to say, well, we just have an angry God. We do have an angry God, but we have a God that sacrificed himself with the greatest demonstration of love that can ever be known to man. That is it. How does this apply? Let's end with this. How does this apply to you? Have you considered this morning 
that the warning of divine grace may be God's sweetest, divine wrath may be God's sweetest grace to you. The wrath of God is not an overreaction. He's the only one who sees us and sees all things clearly. Friend, if you're here today and don't know Jesus Christ, please don't hear. You know, many people, and I, I think of our, uh, our senior citizens here who've, who've been around and been decades of, of sermons, and this used to be very normally. You'd pound from the pulpit, and they'd sweat, and they'd throw Bibles, and I'm not doing that today. If the Bible comes flying at you, I'm falling down with it because I probably passed out. That's not how we're, we're doing this. But friends, it's a serious topic, isn't it? It's a very serious topic. You may make many choices in your life, but the greatest choice you have to make is the question Peter was asked by Jesus. Jesus asked him, Peter, who do you say that I am? And if you're here today and you don't know Christ, that's the biggest question you have to ask. Who is Jesus to you? C.S. Lewis said you can have three answers. He's, he's either a liar. He was just spitting out lies. He's just a liar. Secondly, he said Christ could have been a lunatic. He could have been a crazy man that people followed and just happened to be around all the time. Or the third logical possibility, and Lewis landed this way. He said he's either a liar, a lunatic, or thirdly, he's the Lord. And friends, he is. You know, if you look at the book of Revelation, especially Revelation 4, you'll hear the claps of thunder. You'll see John describe the claps of thunder going on. But you know when you get to the last judgment, it's silent. There's no more thunder. There's no more warnings. Friends, it's gone. It's gone. Do you know Jesus Christ today? Talk to me. I'm not going to twist your arm. We're not going to make you... You know, get up and dance. Though you may, if you know Jesus, want to dance occasionally, and that's okay because that's what he does. But, friends, if you're here today and you don't know Christ, talk to me. Talk to our deacon of the month, Richard. Uh, I know he would love to talk to you as well. And Carol, they would love to find one of us. Secondly is this. The wrath of God is as personal and as potent as his love, and Paul is not ashamed. Friends, verse 16 of Romans. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. Christian, have you given up praying for someone because you think they're beyond God's reach in your life? Maybe it's a person who just came to know, you know, something worse in their life. They went deeper and deeper into sin. Do you trust that God is going to work in their hearts? Pray for them. Actually, I had a friend of mine who's a pastor of a church in um, uh, just, uh, just south of here. He tweeted out, I won't say his name because the person might be a connection, but I will say this that he said that he tweeted out on Thursday, he said, I had a congregation member come and tell me after 40 years of praying for such person, that person came to know Jesus Christ. Friends, don't give up on people because God has not given up on us. Amen. Last thing is this. The greatness of Christ's sacrifice is diminished if you minimize the wrath of God. Friends, God is so good to us. Praise him that he took every ounce of God's wrath. Say, Darren, where did you get all this stuff? Well, I got it from the Bible. Let me tell you one book. If you really want to know what this is all about, many of you have heard this thing. And Megan, I'll go ahead and have you throw up the last picture for me. Jonathan Edwards wrote the great uh, American preacher, probably one of the greatest American preachers, wrote a a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Anyone ever heard this before? Read this before? Read it. He, He spoke like this, and he looked down. He never made eye contact. And God used this sermon to revolutionize America, the Great Awakening, July 8th, 1741. I'll close with this. He wrote, Your wickedness makes you as if you're a heavy as lead and tend downwards with great weight and pressure towards hell. And if God should let you go, you would immediately sink swiftly and descend and plunge into the bottomless gulf. Your healthy body and your care and prudence and best... I, mean, I can't even say the word. Your best efforts, basically. And all your righteousness 
would have more, no more influence to uphold you and keep you out of hell than a spider's web would have stopped a falling rock. He said, there are black clouds of God's wrath now hanging directly over your heads, full of the dreadful storm, big with thunder. And were it not for the restraining hand of God, it would immediately burst forth upon you. But it's the sovereign pleasure of God for the present to stay his rough wind. Otherwise, it would come with fury, and your destruction would come like a whirlwind, and you would be like the shaft of the summer threshing floor. Friends, if you don't believe the gospel, you'll never be empowered, you'll never be thrilled, you'll never be able to rejoice that Jesus Christ is king. Let's go before the Lord in prayer today. Father, this is a sermon that a pastor, Father, you know my heart in this, that it's hard to preach, Lord. It's very hard to preach. It's your word, Lord, but it's tough because humanly, Lord, there's a lot of these things that we say, wow, is that our God? But Lord, I'm so grateful you are our God and that this is you and there's no surprises. This is you. Father, I thank you that one day you will set all things right. But Father, I pray for any in this room, any in our families, our friends, our neighborhood that do not know Jesus Christ, that Lord, you would, by your divine appointment, Open their hearts to believe the gospel. Spirit, would you work in their hearts, draw them, convict them, show them the loveliness and beauty that can only be found in Jesus Christ. Father, for those of us who have behold, beheld your son and seen the beauty, Lord, may we not be mired by sin. May you give us wisdom to walk. Father, how does a young man keep his way pure? By keeping and storing up your word in our hearts. Help us to do that this week. Father, I pray for this church that, Lord, we would walk out of here not saying, oh, what a terrible God we have, but what an amazing God we have that, Lord, you gave your son for us, and the greatest gift we have is to know and make him known in this world. Lord, give us wisdom. Thank you so much for your, your son. Lord, you're great. Thank you for this congregation. Whatever needs are before us, Lord, you know them. You know them all. Be with them. Be with them all, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name.